The scripture reading today is 1 Corinthians 13, verses 11 through 13. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. You're a, a good little Protestant, you might have noticed that uh, the passage this morning that was read is based on, belongs to uh, the well-known chapter on love in the Bible. Uh, we didn't include it this morning as an act of mercy, <laughs> because uh, this passage has been read at virtually every wedding that you and I have ever attended, um, but that's okay, because you're all familiar with it now. So um, I just wanted to let you know that that is a little bit of the context behind uh, this sermon today, and so uh, this sermon doesn't make sense um, unless uh, it is connected uh, to love. I'll, I'll talk about that um, a little bit later, but I want to, just to give you a little teaser, like that's the, that's the key, is love. Um, why don't you pray with me before we start today? I'm getting ahead of myself. Here we go. God, we are, um, we are thankful for uh, your spirit and word, God. We're thankful that when we open up your word and when we wrestle through it and when we wrestle through it in faith, um, that somehow you show up. And so, God, we pray in this moment in the ways that you need to show up in our lives. Not for selfish, selfish reasons, God, but ways in which you've called City Church San Francisco to be good news to our world. Would you speak? Would you speak to us as individuals? Would you give us the peace that we need to hear in this moment? Amen. A major decision uh, in my adult life was moving to California for the first time. Uh, it was in 2015. I had to choose between staying at a local seminary in Chicago, where I was born and raised. Um, the benefits to that was I'd be close to home, be close to family, all my friends. Uh, 
And the seminary was also started for the non-spiritual reasons, but it was also giving me more scholarship money. Uh, I had to choose between that and moving across the country to another seminary uh, where I didn't know anyone, uh, to California, uh, where I had very little connections, uh, and to a seminary that was a little bit more liberal than the tradition that I was raised. And while I ultimately chose uh, that seminary uh, because I wanted to find a community that would hold my questions, the deep questions that I was asking as somebody being called into ministry, uh, I also ended up choosing the seminary because of the conversation that I had with one of my mentors. So whenever I had a big decision in my life, I always, um, this is what I normally did, I would talk to uh, one of my undergrad professors who was uh, a mentor in my life, Dr. David Rim, and here is where I, I approached the, the conversation. I was like, uh, here's how I approached the conversation. I was like, this is just going to be, uh, you know, just a checkbox. I already, I've made my decision to stay here in Chicago. Uh, Melody has signed off on that decision, so she wants to stay here. Uh, Melody's my wife. Um, and I'm just going to ask Dr. Rim, get his opinion on what I should do, and he's going to say, no, duh, you should stay here. And so I sat down with him, and I was shocked to realize um, that Dr. Rim uh, was very direct in telling me, I think you need to leave Chicago. And uh, there was a little bit of surprise to me, uh, because Dr. Rim is never direct. He always has like this kind of like, uh, I don't know, like this Jedi mind trick that he kind of pulls on you, where he like gets you to what he really thinks, but doesn't actually say what he thinks. And here he was being so direct with me. And I said to him, you know, what you're asking me to do feels a little bit like you're asking me to run a marathon when I don't have any of the training for that. And like the wise person he is, he told me, uh, it's more like training in a different environment. It's the difference between training in your home, which all of us have done at some point because of COVID, or training in a gym, with equipment, with trainers, with sparring partners. And so what you need to do in order to become the person who God has called you to be, you have to change your environment. You have to unlearn the things that you thought you knew. And that seems like a very uh, fitting advice for us, this community, at this point in time. And it's very fitting advice uh, because we're entering into a new season in the church. We've had many transitions over the last couple years. And in order for us to be a new kind of community, we have to unlearn things. To change the way that we used to think and embrace something that is entirely new. What does that look like? What does it mean to embrace new knowledge of God? What does that kind of faith look like? That question is especially complex in a time where our religious institutions have lost trust with us, and especially in a time where so many people claim to speak for God. I've been told by a very reliable source called ChatGPT <laughs> that in God, I can, uh, that in uh, the Protestant branch of Christianity alone, that there are, it's estimated that there are 9,000 different denominations 
So what does it mean to have true knowledge of God? What does that faith look like? This question of true knowledge is what's up for debate in our passage this morning. The Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the Corinthian church, a church that he has started. Uh, Paul is uh, writing them because there are so many divisions in the church that the church is getting ready to split up. One of the reasons why, Paul, um, why the church is splitting up is because there are factions that have occurred um, in the church around certain figures, certain leading figures in um, the Corinthian church. Paul is a runner-up. Paul is somebody who has founded the church at Corinth. And the second is Apollos. Apollos was Paul's predecessor. Um, some Christians were also loyal to Peter, another one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus. And so these Corinthians were bickering and arguing amongst themselves as to which of their teachers possessed true knowledge. But what we need to know is that um, this, is, this is a little bit self-interested because of the cultural milieu in which um, these Christians were living in. Corinth is a place uh, where they're high, that attracts high-achieving, very socially ambitious people. And so one's reputation and one's accomplishment uh, were of the utmost importance. And so these factions and the leaders of these factions in the church are not just arguing for their theological position. They're also acknowledging, they're also trying to argue for their status in their community. Because they believe that they have a certain claim to special knowledge that makes them superior to other Christians. And when I was reflecting on this passage, I, was, I found myself like, with an overwhelming sense of gratitude that our churches are nothing like that today. <laughs> that we've progressed in maturity from our spiritual ancestors. And that we are more generous and humble in our interactions with each other. Especially when we have strong differences. But this is what the Corinthians believed. Not only did they believe that their knowledge makes them more superior than each other, but they believed that their superiority, their superiority could be demonstrated through the use of spiritual gifts. And so the two things that I will, this is the only little like nugget of Bible knowledge that I will kind of nerd out on, um, is that the gift of speaking in tongues and the gift of prophecy were very important to the Corinthian church. That's because so many of them uh, were classically educated. Rhetoric was a very important skill that was prized from the Corinthians. And so if you had the gift of tongues, imagine how important you could look in front of your community. If you could speak the gift of tongues, this would mean that you could speak a language that only God knows, and you would act as the mouthpiece of the Spirit to your community. And if you could prophesy, it meant that you had the gift to not just understand the gift of tongues, not just know it, but decipher its meaning for your community. Imagine how self-important it might have felt to be those people, to have those gifts, to have that kind of knowledge. And so in this letter, Paul uh, writes to the Corinthians and he says, look, spiritual knowledge is not just what you know. And it's not just how much you know, but it's how you use what you know in service to others. 
And in the same way, uh, spiritual strength is not just what you can do, not just your abilities, what or how impressive those abilities are, but how you use your gifts in service to the most vulnerable. That's the person who is truly and spiritually enlightened. That's the person who really understands what it means to know God. That's why Paul keeps on describing a partial knowledge. He says, I see in part. He talks about this metaphor of a mirror. And mirrors can play tricks on us, right? Because it can make us believe that we're actually seeing the real thing. When in reality, it's only a reflection. It's only part of the truth and not the whole truth. I recently came across a conversation uh, with David Letterman and uh, Jerry Seinfeld on, on Netflix. Um, I realize this sounds like a very old uh, saying. <laughs> uh, for the kids watching, uh, David Letterman uh, is a giant in American late uh, night comedy. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld is a giant in American stand-up comedy. And so you have these two... Uh, comedians sitting down, reflecting on their careers, and at one point in the conversation, David Letterman, um, almost as an aside, says, you know what, like, after looking back on my career, I wish that I left my late night show 10 years ago, so I could have taken that energy and applied it to actually doing something good for humans. And Jerry Seinfeld looks almost mystified at him, and he says, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Uh, you couldn't have done more for humans than by doing your show. And the conversation went um, on like this. It becomes this back and forth where Lenneman is trying to point out uh, how uh, being in the entertainment industry can often be a selfish pursuit. And Jerry Seinfeld is saying, no, no, it's not a selfish pursuit. It's a generous pursuit because you're giving of your gifts to other people. And I was watching this, and I, I was like, this is like, this is like ships in the night. And I remember feeling so much empathy for David Letterman because I, what I think he was getting at was a little bit of the wisdom that we find in our text. And what he's trying to say is that there's a distinction between doing something good for someone else's benefit and doing something good in a way that just benefits ourselves. And you might say, well, what difference does it make? You're doing good. You're just doing good. And that's where Paul would say, it makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. This is why when you do good in a way that just benefits you, even if it's a gift that you share with the world, you feel incomplete. But when you perform a selfless act on someone else's behalf, you discover what it truly means to be human. Paul says you have an incomplete knowledge if you claim spiritual enlightenment, but don't know how to love. Paul says love is not the means to an end. Love is the end in itself. Love is the end to which all our gifts, all our talent, all our influence, all our accomplishments should be directed. But the Corinthians have it backwards. 
They've come to believe that their gifts were the ends in themselves. And that's the kind of thinking Paul says, that's how I used to think. That's immature thinking. That's how I used to think when I was a child. And he reminds them of a timeless truth that young people are hopelessly self-absorbed. I would know, all right? I'm the youth pastor. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, All of us have had this experience of being a young person and being so absorbed or caught up in just you. It's not unique to Gen Z. It's not unique to millennials. It's unique to that specific stage of development. That in that moment, all you can see is you're, you're, you're learning all kinds of things about yourself. You're learning your skills. You're learning what you're passionate about. You're learning who you are, how you fit in the story of our worlds. And Paul comes around the Corinthians and he says, that's a really good thing to learn about how God has created you to be. But wisdom means learning how to see your gifts with the right perspective. Wisdom says you understand that your gifts are not just there to serve you. That your gifts have a higher end, a higher calling to love and serve the others that God has placed in your life. That's maturity. That's wisdom. Please hear me. I'm, I'm not saying that theology is not important. You're talking to one of the biggest like theology nerds not ever, but I'm a big theology nerd. Uh, my wife will tell you that uh, the bookshelf in our house is sacrosanct. Like, I can, the, the stereotypical relationship that the dad has with uh, the thermometer is what I have to my bookshelf. I know when anyone touches it, all right? And I love it. I'm always reading so many books. Um, uh, like five different books at any point in time. I'm reading too many books that I don't even read. Um, We are a church that prizes and highly values pursuing God in the life of the mind. So please do not hear me. I'm saying, I'm not saying that we should be anti-intellectual. I'm saying that our love cannot be divorced from the things that we say that we believe. Our love cannot be divorced from our theology. And Paul is saying that love is a better way than having mastery in some theological domain. It's the greatest spiritual gift that you can attain because it endures. That's good news. That's good news to a David Letterman who's reflecting on his life. That's good news to a young person who's entering into college for the first time. That's good news for us who've been around for a while, and that's good news for people who are joining our community for the first time. If you want to be remembered, if you care about your legacy and the legacy that you want to leave behind, if you want to make a difference, Paul says, build your life. Build your life on love. That's why in verse 13, Paul says that out of all the spiritual gifts, love is the greatest. Because it will endure even in the world to come. 
in just the verses preceding all of our spiritual gifts, Paul says, will come to an end. Prophecies and tongues will cease. Our theology and our eloquent preaching will cease. Our programs, our ministries, our songs, our liturgies, they will cease in the new heavens and the new earth. And at the end of time, it won't matter how talented we are, how influential we were. What will matter is how we loved. That's what will truly matter. Again, I'm not trying to make false dichotomies here. I'm not saying don't participate in church. You're talking to one of the pastors. I'm saying that what drives our work cannot just be ego. It cannot just be this need for approval. It needs to be rooted in love. Love needs to be the motivation for what we do. Love needs to be the driving force because it's the strongest force. I, I love this church. I'm more proud of being a part of this church than anything I've ever done. When I first joined staff in 2019, I was so impressed um, by City Church. Uh, my experience interviewing uh, on staff was, it was singular. It was unique. Uh, I remember finally, like, landing at a place and being like, these are my people. Like, these are the values. This is, this is, this is how, I mean, I can get on board with, with so much of this. And, and I was impressed by all the things that we love about our church, how we have the legacy of becoming an inclusive church, how uh, we care about the city, how that's been a part of our history in the past, uh, how we help launch ministries like Faith and Justice or City Hope or a counseling center. And when I first joined staff, I was just glad to be a part of it. And I wonder in this next iteration of City Church, what if our new legacy is not marked by our accomplishments? What if it's marked by how deeply we loved the community around us? And that's not always seen. That's not always easily measured. But what would it look like if people interacted with people in our church and we were so filled with the love of God, so filled with the Spirit of God that when people interacted with our church, they would say things like, you know, city church are some of the most generous, most gracious people. They're imperfect. They don't claim to be perfect. And even though I don't, I don't believe in Christianity, I don't know if I buy into that church stuff, that's the Christian that I want to be. They make me want to be a Christian. They make me want to believe that this is true. I'm not really sure what God is calling our church to do in this next season of ministry, but I'm pretty sure it begins with love. I'm fairly certain of that. So maybe you've been listening to the sermon and you're like, well, what about my need to be seen? Shouldn't I be seen? Isn't it important uh, for me uh, to be valued, to be celebrated? Isn't that very important? And I would respond with the words of Martin Luther King, somebody who can put it way better than I can. The great American prophet, Dr. King, says, don't lose the instinct of being great, of being important, of being first. 
If you follow Jesus, you're called to be great. But be great in love. First, in generosity. There is nothing wrong with wanting to be remembered. There's nothing wrong with wanting to stand out. I want to stand out. I want to be great. But love has to be the primary occupation for those who want to be great. That is the motivation for people who want to be great. So I'm going to close uh, with Dr. King's words, and this is taken from the same sermon that I just paraphrased, the drum major instinct. And I would like to close with these words just as a meditation for us. Dr. King here is reflecting on how he wants to be remembered long after he passes, and he says, if any one of you are around when I have to meet my day, I don't want a long funeral. And if you get someone to deliver the eulogy, tell them not to talk too long. And every now and then I wonder what I want them to say. Tell them not to mention that I have a Nobel Peace Prize. That isn't important. Tell them not to mention that I have three or four hundred other awards. That's not important. Tell them not to mention where I went to school. I'd like somebody to mention that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I'd like for somebody to say that the day Martin Luther King Jr. I'd like to say... I'd like for somebody to say that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. I want you to say that day that I tried to be right on the war question. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try to feed the hungry. And I want you to be able to say that day that I did try to clothe those who were naked. I want you to say on that day that I did try in my life to visit those who were in prison. I want you to say that I've tried to love and serve humanity. So let the same be said of us. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit.